2020. That depends a lot more on you than you ever possibly imagined. Over the next two months, I'm going to tell you about God's way to the good life. The really good life. I've been watching a lot of football while I'm doing PowerPoints. And so I was thinking about how. How many of you think that Drew Brees has a game plan for today? He probably doesn't need one because he's playing Vikings or something. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, Minnesota fan. But anyhow, uh, yeah. Nothing worse than watching a team that either doesn't have a game plan or appears not to have a game plan. Or sometimes they'll even say this. Doesn't look like they were on the same page of the game plan, right? Like somebody's on phase one, somebody's advanced to a, a further level, and they're not connecting. Do you know that you need a game plan for the coming year? And you've had a game plan every year of your life. How's that been working for you? <laughs> so even some of your game plans had really good goals in view. How many of you started a new year before this new year with a goal of staying sober? How many of you failed at that goal? Okay, a lot of you. <laughs> yeah, the goal was good. Your game plan, maybe not so good. How are we going to get to the goal? God has a better game plan. And we're going to take it from the words of Jesus found in Matthew chapter 5. Matthew chapter 5 is part of a greater teaching by Jesus, often referred to as the Sermon on the Mount, in chapters 5, 6, and 7. Everything you need to know to get started on God's game plan for your 2020 are packed into the opening verses. We're going to start by reading them. This is from Matthew 5, beginning verse 1. Now when Jesus saw the crowds, he went up on a mountainside, and sat down. <clears throat> in those days, they did, by their culture, just the opposite we do. Who's teaching today? Standing up. Yeah, the one who's standing up. That's our culture. Everybody else sits down, you're ready to listen. I'm standing up, I'm ready to talk. Okay? Now, I can talk when I sit down too, but nonetheless, I'm standing up, the one who's talking. But in Jesus' day, if somebody had something to say, and people wanted to listen to it, the teacher sat down and everybody else stood up. Actually, kind of like that. <laughs> Sandra, the teacher, is going for that. Went up the mountainside and sat down. His disciples came to him and he began to teach them. Now, by the way, we're going to revisit this, but let me stop and ask from the text who was he teaching? Disciples. The disciples. Disciples. Not the crowd. This is a teaching for the crowd. I'm not at Walmart preaching this today. I'm at Calvary. This is for you. You're a select group. And here's what he said. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, 
for they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called children of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you, and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad, because great is your reward in heaven. For in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. You are the salt of the earth. But if the salt loses its saltiness, how can it be made salty again? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled underfoot. You are the light of the world. A town built on a hill cannot be hidden. Neither do people light a lamp and put it under a bowl. Instead, they put it on its stand, and it gives light to everyone in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before men, that they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. Thus ends the introduction to what is known as the Sermon on the Mount. Now, to be honest, in our sense of what a sermon is, it isn't really a sermon. It is teaching. It's a discussion. It's a lesson shared in an informal setting, but it is a lesson that contains in it the power to change the direction of your life. If we were to simplify and summarize what the Sermon on the Mount is, we would say, the Sermon on the Mount is the Kingdom of God Manifesto. Now, that would be of no interest to you if you're not interested in living in and under the authority of the Kingdom of God. But since you're saying, up to this point, my way of running my life, another way of saying that is, my kingdom, not so good. I'm ready to listen to all offers to live in a better kingdom. Jesus is saying, let me tell you about life in my kingdom. How we live there, how we operate. Two terms that are important to understand. First, kingdom of God. Now, you probably noticed that what Matthew actually says is the kingdom of heaven. Mark and Luke, the other two synoptic Gospels, say kingdom of God. Both of them are referring to the same teachings. So Jesus said one of them, and one of them, or two of them, made a change. We assume, and we're probably right, that Matthew is the one who made the change. Because Matthew was writing his Gospel for advancing like Jesus for the purpose of committing the Christ Messiah. So that they, largely he was writing to a Jewish audience, Jews would embrace Jesus as Messiah. 
Now, Jews in their culture never said the name of God. And so we're assuming that not Jesus, because Jesus didn't have a whole lot of respect for the traditions of the Jews, but Matthew, because he wanted the Jews to give him a listen to what he had to say, substituted kingdom of heaven. The reason why they called it heaven was, instead of saying the name of God, when they wanted to refer to God, it's kind of like maybe at your house you may call your husband or somebody that guy, you know? Okay, they would say something that related to that person. Okay, and there's nothing that relates to God more than where does God live? I mean, he lives everywhere, but we say heaven. So when you say kingdom of heaven, kingdom of God, exactly the same thing. But Jesus did a lot of teaching in the rest of the gospel, both in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, about what the kingdom of God is. And what we find out is the kingdom of God, the one thing, is not a place. It doesn't have any geography. And it is not a political expression at all. Some people think that. It's like, well, kingdom of God, that's like right-wing or left-wing politics or American politics or European politics or Brexit or whatever. They still fighting about that over in Europe? I wasn't asking you about the guy just got back from England. Are they still fighting about it? Yes. Yeah. We fight about our own stuff. Each. Anyhow, off of politics, that's all I'm going to say about that. But the kingdom of God, Jesus makes clear, is in fact and can be any place. Any place. One time he said to his disciples, don't go looking for the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God, he said, is in you. That's how we know it can be anywhere. If the kingdom of God can be in it can fit anywhere. The kingdom of God is any place where Jesus is recognized as king. Did you know that in your heart, metaphorically speaking, there's a throne? For most all of your life, who's been sitting there? Me. You. Yeah. Even for those of you who get real inspired by my message, and when we sing the last song, or singing all about how Jesus is your Lord and all that, are going to walk out that door, and sometime you're going to at least be tempted to say, excuse me, Jesus, if you could get off the throne a moment. I believe I'd like to sit down and make this decision for myself. Oh, you won't do that? Where are you going for lunch today? Okay, well, that's a good answer. But that's not most of our answers, is it? I don't know. What do you feel like eating? <coughs> oh, they're going to be there? Who do you want to be? I really want to see them. Oh, last time I went over there, I got damn service. I don't want to go. And almost nobody's going to say, I wonder where Jesus wants us to go out lunch today. That's how we know we do a better job singing about Jesus being king than actually living as if he were king. Right? But Jesus says the kingdom of God is any place where he is in fact recognized as king. Where then his will is obeyed as if he were king. Because I know a lot of you pray to know God's will so that you can consider or think about whether you want to do it or not. Okay? And that's not the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God is where you pray to know the will of God so that you can immediately and without hesitation, with all of the energy you have, do it. And until you find out what it is, you don't just wandering through life flying by the seat of your pants. 
You just sit still and say, God, I'm not moving from here until you show me what I'm supposed to do next. And then when he shows you, you do it. And then when he says stop, you stop. And then when you say what else and he shows you, you do what else. That's the kingdom of God. He's recognized as king. His will is obeyed as such. Their quality is those who recognize him as king and obey his will as if he were king enjoy certain benefits and privileges that only, in fact, belong to people living in the kingdom of God. Did you know that every day Christians all over the world claim promises from God's word as their own that in fact don't apply to them? Because about 90% of the believers' promises apply to only people living in the kingdom of God. And so today, if I make a renewed commitment to turn my whole life, have you ever heard that phrase before? How many, ever, how many of you ever heard that term someplace besides church? Turn it over. Okay. Okay, you're getting a connection now, right? All right? You turn it all over. How many of you ever turned it all over in a meeting and then took it all back on the way out the door? Yeah, exactly. And people do it at church every Sunday. Well, all that happens is God doesn't like go hunting you down to do nasty things to you when you do that. He simply says... There are blessings and benefits that you will have under my lordship that are awesome. When you decide not to live under a lordship, you don't have those. They're gone. They don't belong to people who are running their own lives. If you run your own life, you're responsible for your own blessings. Did you know that? Think about it. So what is a manifesto? A manifesto, according to Webster, is a public declaration of organizational policies and aims issued by one in a position of authority. In other words, this is the king saying, let me give you a little glimpse of what life will be like if you make me king of your life and step into the reign that is the kingdom of God. Here's what it's going to be like. And here's what he is is our game plan for life. Now, some of you aren't into sports, so here's another good illustration. It's a very old picture, but you probably still have one of these in your car. It's called Hitler's Manual. Okay, Someone, not you, stuck it in your glove compartment to tell you when to change your oil, what kind of oil to use, what kind of other kinds of fluids to use, what kind of tires to put on your car, where to drive it, how to drive it, what not to do, what to do. And that might seem rather presumptuous until you realize they made the car. The, the car manufacturer is king of that car. You may own it, or at least have the thing that they make payments on it, but it's their car. They want you to drive it, enjoy it, and buy another one later. They want it to work out for you. They give you an owner's manual. Jesus says, let me give you an owner's manual for the citizen of the kingdom of God. And that's what we have in the words of Paul. So we ask the question then, what inspired Jesus to give this teaching? This is where we're going to find out that 
Some of what you've seen depicted in movies not, might not be exactly accurate. The text begins with these words. Now, when Jesus saw the crowds, you ever be out someplace and see masses of people running here and there and running into each other, and they all look lost and don't know where they're going or, or what they're doing? I was, at, I was at Walmart on Friday, and who should I run into but Eric Neubauer from China. And he just landed from China. His sister picked him up at the airport and took him right to Walmart. There should be a walk in there. <laughs> and he's walking around because he's got major jet lag from being from China. He's walking around like this and going, hey, aren't you Eric? And he goes, yeah, I just got in from China. I go, I, I can tell. And I was thinking, man, this guy needs help. If I can kidnap him from his sister, I'd take the poor guy home so he could take a nap, right? And that's the way people look. Go out to Walmart today, check it out. They don't have to go to be coming from China, they just look like they came from China, right? They're in this like days. It's amazing, all going like, which line is gonna be longer? Oh no, there's the lady with the coupons that expired six months. Kind of stuff. And they're just lost and wandering. And Jesus has the same thing. He's been ministering now for several months and large crowds of people have been coming to watch him do miracles and eat free lunches, right? And get healed and have their, their loved ones delivered from demonic possession. And massive crowds just where Jesus today and wherever he's at, that's where they're at. And he sees the crowd, it says, and he begins to teach. He goes, wow, these people need help. So if you've ever felt like you were part of the large crowd, part of humanity, that just wanders around looking for answers to how to make life work, then what follows you'll be able to relate to. Because in this lesson, Jesus is speaking to the condition of the lost and wandering. People looking for answers and not finding them. However, he's not talking to them. Forget everything you ever saw in a movie where Jesus is up on a mountainside hollering down the mountain slope at these thousands of people who have gathered. That's not what the text says, is it? It says, when he saw the crowds, he did something. What did he do? He went up on a mountainside and sat down. His disciples came to him. How many disciples at this point? Twelve. Twelve. Not multitudes. He didn't even have to raise his voice. And he began to teach who? Them. His disciples. Here's the key. If you make a commitment to live your life in the kingdom of God in 2020, under the lordship of Jesus Christ, it won't just impact you. You'll take it back home, and it will shake your whole world. It may even rattle the foundations of Walmart. Okay? One person living under an entirely different authority and according to an entirely different set of principles 
can change the world. His disciples came to him and he began to teach them. Disciples here represent committed followers. They don't represent everybody in this room. Because a bunch of you are going to go home and go, that was a lovely sermon, now back to life. Okay? And that's cool, and I can't keep you from doing that. And you're the one who's going to suffer as a result, so it's not my problem. A minority of you are going to say, he was onto something there. My life's never been going anywhere. I've been running my own life, and I haven't gotten one inch closer to where I want to be. I'm going to give it up, let it go, set it aside, and just enter the kingdom of God. I'm going to be like the devil, not like the crowd. I'm going to say, okay, give it to us. How can my life in 2020 be so remarkably different that I begin to enjoy life and through my life example, other people are impacted? Then what follows are what we call the Beatitudes. You're going to memorize Beatitudes. Some of you did it when you were like confirmation as a child, right? And you memorize the Beatitudes back when you were good at memorizing stuff. The, the, the Beatitudes, not only are they good to memorize, Jesus gave them on purpose in a way that makes them easy to memorize. What do you think he was getting at? Memorize them. Memorize them. Have any of you memorized your driver's license number, social security number, any of those things? Credit card number. Why? So you don't have to take the stinking thing out of your pocket every time and possibly lose it or leave it sitting out because it shouldn't be, right? You get you devote that. These principles are more important than your social security number. What the social security number is for life in America, the Beatitudes are for life in the kingdom of God. You are going to memorize them, and they're easy because they're all in the same form, and here, let me tell you a little bit, you would have never known because they didn't make you go to seminary. In this list of eight Beatitudes, okay, there are eight Beatitudes, eight Blesseds, Blessed are, and they are followed by eight promises. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of God. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted, etc., right? Two of them have the same reward. You ever notice that? All of the rest of them have unique rewards, but two of them have the same reward. Which ones? It's a little technique for memorization in Jesus and inclusion. The first one and the last one, so you know when the list is over, have the same exact reward. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for there is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. End of list. And you're going to memorize, and you're going to memorize them. One at a time. That makes it easy, doesn't it? And you don't have to start till next week, so you can get through your favorite thing, procrastinate for an entire week. So what is the significance of the Beatitudes that comprise the opening verses? Well, notice the word blessed. 
I watched uh, two playoff games yesterday, and all of the winning team members were all blessed. I, I heard him say it. I thank you, it's a blessing today that we're here. That's cool. I wonder what that means for them. A blessing. The word blessed in Greek, in plain Greek, is the word makarios. You may, it may seem vaguely familiar to you because it used to be that the Greek Orthodox bishop in Constantinople, and occasionally there used to be some political issues in the Balkans, was named Bishop Makarios. How'd you like to have a name like that blessed? Pretty awesome, isn't it? Anybody know what my name means? Yeah. What's it mean? You're right. Why did I know she knows <laughs> My name means beloved. Yes. Yes. But bless means, okay, from the classic Greek, three eras of Greek language, classic Greek, Greek of the philosophers, Aristotle and Plato, Koine Greek, the Greek of Alexander the Great, by which he unified the world, Koine Greek or common Greek, and then modern Greek that they speak in Greece today, all the way back into the morning. At the beginning, classical Greek, the word blessed was part of Greek mythology. That was the only place where blessed was used. And remember the gods of, of Greek mythology? They would always be outstandingly good or impressive in one area and remarkably human-like and weak in a bunch of others. They, they play that same game in, the, in some of the superhero uh, comic books and stuff, right? And there would be a god of strength. And nobody was more powerful than this guy. However, he had all these following character weaknesses to go along with it. But if you wanted strength, that's who you went to. There was a goddess of beauty. I mean, you know, I never met that guy. Right now, the goddess of beauty and of intelligence, wisdom, all of those things. Okay. And they would say, Lord, you have been blessed by the goddess of beauty. Or, oh, good answer. You've been blessed by the god of wisdom and knowledge. Oh, look at you. Put up that 500 pounds on the bench press. You've been blessed by the god of almighty power. Right? Jesus borrows the term from classic Greek, pulls it into Koine Greek, and says, let me tell you how the kingdom of God works. You enter the kingdom and live under the kingship of me. You get everything that is me. If it's mine, it becomes yours. The people will start saying of you, you look like your king. Where did you learn that from? You must have gotten that from King Jesus. Here's beautiful Jesus. You're strong and mighty as Christ is. You must live in the kingdom of God. You are blessed. Now, Paul took this same idea and used a different metaphor and transferred it in Galatians 5. He says, in the same way, if you allow the Holy Spirit to live inside of you as a believer, to rule in your life, we call this literally in Paul's language, being filled with the Spirit, Give your life totally over to the control of the Holy Spirit. Then, he says, you will produce, like a tree, 
the fruit of the Spirit. Right. Now, I've heard whole sermon series on this where people go like, the fruit of the Spirit is love. Now, all of you Christians out there, try to be more loving. Okay? And again, that's the opposite of the point. The point is, you're being about as loving as you can be. Unlovable people, they are impossible for human beings to love. Did you know that? I know, because I are one. Okay? Right? Some people are just impossible to love. Unless you're God. Or unless you're living in the kingdom of God. Jesus is saying, no, 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 no. Stop trying to devote so hard to love. Just come in and turn your life, turn the kingdom of your life, turn all the relationships within the kingdom of your life over to me, and I'll love them through you. Because I can do it, and you can't. But if you live in my kingdom, it doesn't matter. Because I'm going to love them through you. And occasionally you're going to go, I don't know how I did that, how I put up with that, how I, etc., etc. And you're going to know the answer. Because I'm living in the kingdom of God, and the king is reproducing in me his nature and character. So, we've got this whole list of eight beatitudes. Blessed are the blank, for theirs is the blank. Now, this should not be thought of as blessed are the blank, because when you are this way, God will like it, he'll smile, and he'll give you one of these. You get a little cookie. That's not the way this works. He's saying... When you live in the kingdom of God, you will be blessed by producing this result, and this result will lead to this experience. It just is the law of life in the kingdom of God. But you only have one thing that you're required to do. Turn your life over to Christ as king. Get off the throne of your own life and invite him to sit on it. Do it consistently, without variation or break, and you will begin to see these values being reproduced in your life, and then you will begin to enjoy the results that are promised. All the way to heaven, because this is how they live in heaven. This is not how they live down here on earth. This is how you can live down here on earth. Because you're living in the kingdom of God. I was in a psychology class, studying psychology, what they do in psychology classes. And I was assigned reading of an autobiography from a su successful psychiatrist from the 1950s, 60s, and 70s. And he wrote an autobiography on his psychiatric practice called A Few Buttons Missing, which I know is in. Few French fries short of a happy meal. Okay. <laughs> I couldn't believe it. I'm reading along things. People were interviewing him, asking, where do you get the information that you teach to people in your counseling practice? And Dr. James T. Fisher offered these words. I'm just blown away. By the way, consider along with these words the fact that you do know where they got the 12 steps from, right? Where Mill did? Okay, all right. Well, it's the same place Dr. Fisher got the stuff he taught in his psychiatric practice. 
He said, if you were to take the sum total of all authoritative articles that have ever been written by the most qualified of psychologists and psychiatrists on the subject of mental hygiene, if you were to combine them and refine them and cleave out all of the excess verbiage, if you were to take the whole of the meat and none of the parsley, if you were to have these unadulterated bits of pure scientific knowledge concisely expressed by the most capable of living poets, what you would have would be an awkward and incomplete summary of the, sum of the Sermon on the Mount. And, says he, it would suffer immeasurably through comparison. For nearly 2,000 years, the Christian world has been holding in its hands the complete answer to its restless and fruitless yearning. Here rests the blueprint for optimum human life with optimum mental health and contentment. Can you believe it? The manufacturer who put an owner's manual in your glove compartment, metaphorically speaking, has a better plan for your life. Amazing. So, this first week, it's important to do the homework assignment if you want to get the most out of this series. But it won't take that much time. Get a tablet or a piece of paper. Draw a line down the center of the piece of paper. On the left-hand side of the sheet, number the problems, situations, issues, difficulties, problems, opportunities that you face at the onset. I'm not getting along with this person. I hate my job. Okay, that kind of stuff. Just list them. Nobody's going to read it, so just write them whatever makes sense to you. Just list them, left hand column. When you're finished, at a separate seating, list on the right hand side the eight Beatitudes, living some space. Write in parallel fashion to the issues in your life. Then at a third setting, Prayerfully, meaning pray before you do it, ask God to lead you, be sensitive to the Holy Spirit's leading, draw a line from each of the issues to the beatitude that has something to say about that problem. In other words, I have this problem because I never practiced this, so that would be a good one. Okay. I got into this situation because I used to do this all the time. But somewhere along the line, I stopped. Draw a line. Now, you'll probably have more than one line to each beatitude. Draw the lines. Notice the dates, because over the next eight weeks, we're going to hit on each of the eight beatitudes. Okay? So I put a little date up there. If you've got a lot of issues that relate to a particular beatitude, and you miss a week of church, be sure to get online and listen to the message. Only if you want your life to get better. I'm assuming you do. Make a list of the challenges you face. Make a list of the Beatitudes. Connect. Now, 
I want to challenge you and warn you that there is one problem here. And the problem is this. The lifestyle that is depicted by the Sermon on the Mount will only work if you're living in the kingdom of God. You can't just do this stuff by the seat of your pants and by the will of your personal strength and expect to get anywhere you won't do. All you'll do is fail. You have to enter the kingdom. And to enter the kingdom means to turn your life over to the Lordship of Christ. To let go rulership of your life. And so we invite you, challenge you today. Enter the kingdom of God. Surrender your life completely to Jesus the King. Only you can decide to do that. I can't manipulate you to do that. And I'm not going to give like a 12-part altar call to get you to do that. Not my style. But I'm here to say to you, if you don't do it, you might as well stay home the next eight weeks because this is just going to torment you otherwise. Let go of the responsibilities of life and put your whole trust in him. Begin to live life one at a time as we move through them by the principles that govern life in the kingdom of God. To this end, if it's helpful, I recommend a little prayer that I pray every morning. I started this about, I can't remember why I started it, but I started it about 30 years ago. And now, without even thinking, as soon as I open my eyes, whether it be 3.45 or 5 o'clock, depending on which day of the week it is, I immediately pray this prayer. Good morning, Lord. This is Sunday, January 5th, I've said today. I belong to you today. I don't tell him that because he needs to know. He knows if I belong to him or not. I say it because I need to be reminded that I long ago made a vow that I belong to him. This day belongs to you. Have your way. Do your will. Accomplish your purposes. I abandon all plans that I have in favor of It's not the only prayer you can pray to live daily in the kingdom of God. But it'll be something like that. Put it in your own words if you need to. And then join us as we hit on the first of the Beatitudes.